Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori, tonight. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today, we're talking about Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville at 25, and that classic, classic rock move, the 500 top songs of all time, the Memorial Day weekend staple from the 70s and 80s. Anyway, you can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk about Liz Fair's Exile at Guyville at 25 and the 500 greatest songs of all time. The Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. As I mentioned, tonight it's a Brother, Brother podcast, just Jeremy and I. Um, and we're going to, uh, you know, uh, take a look back 25 years to... We're getting a lot of, of sort of an- anniversaries and milestones these days of, of things that were very relevant to us when we were young. And one of the more um, sort of jarring and remarkable uh, uh you know, albums that came out in the, in the early 90s, 93 to be exact, is Exile on Guyville by Liz Fair. Um, there's a reissue that uh, packages up the demo tapes that uh, established her and got her signed, and uh, it's all being um, released right now as Liz Fair's girly sound to Guyville. Um, I, you know, I mean, I fell in love with this album the first time I listened to it. I had read, as was the case with a lot of, you know, music back then, I had read copious amounts of it, um, tried to, trying to assess whether or not it was worth my investment before I ever purchased it. It wasn't an album that got played a lot on the radio um, because I had, I was out of college and had just moved to New York City. So, you know, it was one of those ones where I wound up reading a lot before I heard it. I don't know, how, how did you come... Um, to discover this, how did you find Exile in Guyville? Yeah, I mean, similarly, you know, it was funny for me. It was a, um, you know, I was, I was obviously, I was younger. So I was 16, I think, 17 possibly. So in high school and, uh, you know, reading a lot of music mags and music trade uh, trade mags and, you know, fanzines and stuff. And it was just an album that got a ton of buzz that year. I remember buying it, actually, uh, for those of our listeners who are from New Jersey at the Drew Records, uh, you know, Drew, I'm sorry, Drew University, Scotty Records uh, over there <laughs> in, in uh, New Jersey, and, uh, you know, picking it up and immediately being just kind of blown away by this record, and, and, you know, kind of digging back, you know, seeing what kind of went into it has always been interesting, because back then you really didn't have the backstory unless you were living in Wicker Park, Chicago, at the time, you know, the neighborhood at the time where it all kind of got started, which we weren't. But, um, you know, it was an, an album that definitely uh, is a touchstone and remains so. Yeah. I mean, I remember it being lauded by the Village Voice. Um, and again, this is 93. I'm taking, you know, my first months living in New York. Um, you know, uh, it, the New York press 
which was a relevant paper back then, the Village Voice, which was, you know, a massively relevant, um, you know, uh, critical voice nationally, really. Um, and it was sort of, you know, the story, well, there was multiple stories, and some of them were true and some of them weren't. But basically, it was this, you know, extraordinarily literate, you know, very obviously talented singer-songwriter, but who came out of nowhere. And Yeah, supposedly... Uh, I mean, to me, she did. And, um, you know, I think, you know, that, that, you know, then only really, you know, uh, hundreds of years later where we are now, have I gone back and really realized the level of of resentment and, um, you know, the chilly reception she got in her own hometown uh, whilst she was you know, mopping up all sorts of awards and accolades from everywhere, every other, you know, sensible thinking part of the world. Um, and it's part of what the, you know, the whole idea behind naming the album Exile in Guyville is about. It's um, feeling very much um, alone, despite the fact that you're part of a scene and you're part of a group uh, that probably is, you know, fairly relatively tight-knit and, you know, probably, unfortunately, uh, fairly competitive, but um, you know, really, uh, you know, feeling alone as a as a woman in this indie rock uh, community in in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you don't mind, let's look at like 1993, uh, Chicago, Illinois, Chicago, as they say. Yeah, they have a rough and, time um, with vowels. And kind of the scene around there. I mean, you know, first of all, it has to be noted that this is post Nirvana breaking through, right? So we have. 1991, sort of the quote-unquote year punk broke. Um, And then you have, you know, huge mainstream success with Nirvana and and Seattle. And Um, yeah, but there's... And just to... I'm sorry to interrupt, but even just, you know, that that was the modus operandi at that point. It was find the scene that's the most fertile, bleed it to death of... And then, you know, sign uh, far too many undeserving bands on top of the deserving bands. I mean, it went from Athens, Georgia to Minneapolis to, you know, Boston had its moment. Um, you know, all these places, uh, have their moment, but this is Chicago's moment kind of. Yeah, sort of is. I mean, it's a funny time. I mean, I think it's, you know, having lived in Chicago for 10 years, obviously after this, I moved to Chicago in, in 2002, but actually lived around kind of the neighborhood where this all got kicked off. And knowing what I know now about the city, you know, that was not a very, you know, like anywhere, it was probably Brooklyn circa late 90s, you know, or, or you know, an area that had not been gentrified, um, you know, the Lower East Side in the, the 80s and, and early 90s in New York. Um, so, I mean, you had this kind of merging of, I think, really cheap rents. There was a lot of rehearsal space, a lot of space for bands. And, you know, kind of this, like, movement towards the city. So you had bands like, you know, Jesus Lizard um, relocating there. You had, um, you know, bands like the Mekons relocating from, you know, were they Ireland or England? Um, England, you know. And then you also had kind of a, a homegrown talent. You know, you had Shellac and, and um, 11th Dream Day, Shrimp Boat, The Cocktails. Um, tortoise, and it was a really eclectic sort of DIY scene. So, I mean, you had, you know, Jesus Lizard, who was kind of like a, you know, kind of post-punk hard, you know, in-your-face, you know, sort of theatrical rock. 
um, Tortoise, which is obviously sort of more on the long lines of, of free jazz, bands yeah. like Trench Cake. Mouth. Weren't they around there? Yeah, C&Cake actually uh, kind of came out of bands like The Cocktails and Shrimp Boat. Um, but they were, I think their first album came out in 94, you mm-hmm. know, so it was all that that kind of scene. And then you, you know, and, and mind you, most of these, all of these bands that I'm naming are, are sort of male-driven as well. And the kind of epicenter was, a, you know, a club in Lincoln Park called Lounge Axe, and then over in Wicker Park, a bar called the Rainbow Lounge, which I believe is still open today. I, I know I've been there many times when I, I lived in Chicago, and it was kind of the scene where everybody hung out. At the same time, you had Smashing Pumpkins, who were, I think, more of a Exploding, suburban band. Yeah, yeah who had, had Gish, you know, was, it got a lot of critical acclaim. And gave everybody became, a common enemy. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Especially Steve Albini, who I think uh, made everybody's enemy in those years. And, uh, you know, and then you also had a band like Urge Overkill, who, you know, weren't quite as huge as the Smashing Pumpkins, but definitely thought they were bigger. Yeah, they, they, um, they, the, they, they're part of their act was this sort of louche, um, you know, been there, done that, like, rock star vibe when they weren't rock stars yet. And that was a kind of a fun conceit. I actually liked Urge Overkill a lot, and I liked their music. Um, yeah, Saturation, an album that you and I both really like a lot, came out in 93 as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was, it was kind of a, a, a pretty big thing. And, and to your point, I think the record labels and the sort of hunger for this next scene really converged at the same time. And, and you know, you had clubs like Metro, I mentioned Lounge Axe, Empty Bottle opened that year. Um, so it was, it was just kind of a, a perfect storm. And then here you have Liz Fair who, you know, had been kind of recording demos um, called the Girly Girl Tapes that were circulated by hand. Yeah, exactly. I believe she went to Oberlin Oberlin. and then then moving into her parents' house. But essentially not following the, you know, the sort of righteous path, which is, you know, playing a lot in sweaty clubs and rising to, you know, sort of graduating a level every year into larger venues. Uh, She kind of comes out of nowhere and just blows everybody's doors off. Yeah, and I think, too, like, it's it's worth mentioning, and and you and I, I think, are keenly aware of this, probably you more, but this was before there was ever the term indie rock. You know, there was still sort of like, there was the grunge term, there was all, all college radio alternative. But I, I really almost think this kind of, you Cemented. know, really this this year, 93, with all these bands, and then, you, you know, you had bands like Pavement and stuff like that going on, is really what became the indie rock that we know today. Yeah, I mean, and I think Liz Fair's Exile on Main Street, or Exile, <laughs> Exile on Main Street, we'll talk about that in a minute, Exile on Guyville is almost like a, a, a blueprint even for that sound a little bit. Yeah, there was, I mean, it was a lo-fi, um, although it wasn't badly produced for the, you know, and she's a, a better player than she's given credit for, but it's it's a very DIY um, you know, and, and it, you know, you can't you can't talk about this album without talking about the writing because it is what makes it remarkable. I mean, it's it's oh, definitely. confessional, it's you know, absolutely you know, sort of naked honesty in an era when irony was king. Um, it, you know, there's some very funny stuff on here, but it's, it's very self-deprecating. It's very, um, harrowing really. I mean, if you think about, you know, the, how far you've come in, you know, how far the world has come in the last 25 years, as far as, um, you know, interpersonal relationships. I mean, this is, this is people talking about shit that didn't get talked about.
No, and I, and I think, too, just to rewind a minute, it, it, it was also a time when it just wasn't cool to get critical acclaim, right? There was very much that, like, line in the sand of, like, we are, you know, DIY. Well, it certainly wasn't point, cool like, to get really popular. It was Sweating cool to, it out. Yeah. Um, you know, at the clubs, that kind of thing. And then along came this person who just wrote better songs than anyone <laughs> had heard and also wrote... Um, you know, to your point, like really confessional songs. I mean, as a 17-year-old hearing this album, and you know, you know, I have to admit it on this pod, I am a male. Um, it was a, uh, it was just very different. You know, a different style of confessional songwriting. It, it made you feel, and I'm sure for you in your 20s at the time, you know, as much as it was, as it was from a woman's point of view, it was kind of the same things you were doing, though, right? Like waking <laughs> up with strangers, regretting, you know, actions, like having the pressure of, of sort of, you know, traditional life um, being thrust upon you in all different directions, and yet, like, kind of, you know, and not wondering why, yeah. yeah, and wondering why you were, like, quote unquote, you know, a mess or a it's, fuck up or whatever. The, it's the quintessential. Everybody, you know, I mean, the, the underpinnings of it to me were always, you know, the sorts of, uh, you know, the struggles you go through in your early 20s, which is everybody has a has a plan but me. Right. Um, and that's a universal feeling that nobody really shared. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, but I, and I do think that, you know, it's, um, and just the frankness of the sexual um, conversation, you know, the, dialogue um in her writing it was so different and refreshing and there was a number of novelists that were going in this direction at this point but it usually was more um uh stylized and cooler like it was you know sort of like yeah we got really fucked up and it you know we were we cheated death and it was it was boastful hers was just sort of resigned and and you know, she was a, certainly a participant in it, but it, there was a. It was she was just a great chronicler of of feelings. It was yeah, a, there was a there was like a, an honesty, kind of a confidence mm-hmm. that you hadn't heard before in sort of the frankness. Like there was no. Sh- I mean, the songs have you know all sorts of different emotions, but you almost felt like there was not so much shame as much as like just sort of a recounting yeah. of a, a night out, Isn't which was pretty damn great. Um, yeah, it was it was it was amazing. Um, to you know, it was just a, an amazing thing to hear dropped, and it's it's really hard. You know, we frequently have this conversation with Christian because of of the age difference. It's it's very you know we and the, our our you know sort of ground zero for this conversation is the Ramones, where you know he says, "Oh, this to me sounds like you know a faster version of the Beach Boys," and it's like, yeah, it is. But you don't understand. You'll never be able to understand what it sounded like in 1976 when you'd never heard it before. And the right. same is true of, of uh, Liz Fair. I think, um, you know, she launched um, a thousand artists who were, by virtue of the very existence of this album, um, given license to say what they were actually thinking. <laughs> Which doesn't, I mean, it, it, it just sounds so obvious at this point, but it really was a re- revelation in 1993. Yeah, and I think gave voice to kind of the, you know, I mean, she was very much a part of the scene, you know. She didn't necessarily, quote unquote, you know, uh, tour around and, and play the clubs like some of the other bands who, who sort of complained about her early success. But I think she was definitely in the scene very much. And, uh, 
and I think too, it, it was kind of a you know there there was sometimes like the the you know you had the L sevens of the world and the the sort of riot girl scene and, and things like that, and and I think this was a uh, a different take on kind of the feminine outlook. You know, it was it was a very like it was just different. Yeah. You know, it was, it was less sort of like in your face, and it was more. Um, you know, but just really clever and, and really straightforward. Part of that whole, you know, I, I, you know, sort of um, value that was placed on, you know, credibility and authenticity and not trying too hard and blah blah blah. You know that that were sort of, um, you know, uniformly accepted tenets of this of this era. Um, one of the things was. You know, ironically, um, you know, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world for people to find out that you were, you know, a upper middle class college kid. Um, right. Oddly enough, all of you know, nearly all of the <laughs> all war, of yeah, rock yeah, is made I mean, up but of. It, 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 but it was one of those things that was a point of contention. You know. Yeah, it was a leftover from the early sort of punk ethos days of you know, kind of. Uh, I think the the working class, you know. Um, up from the bottom, kind of, and she was all of those things. Rebellion, I mean, you, know, you know, as yeah. was Steve Malkmus, as was you know, you know, you name it, they were that. Um, and you know, you sort of mix in with the punk scene, and and you get this, uh, you know, you get the, um, you know, your authenticity fix. But this, you know, flies in the, you know, that, that revelation of her, you know, of being a college kid from you know Lake Forest or Barrington or wherever. I don't, I don't actually remember where she's from. But, you know, or uh, Glencoe. Glencoe, is that another one? I don't know. Anyway, I mean, they're all northern suburbs. Of Chicago, the, you know, northern suburbs, well-to-do, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, but anyway, that said, there's also a piece of this that I think is really interesting, which is that this is, again, a couple years prior to the Internet really having any, um, you know, sort of public... Reception, public, you know, public yeah, you knowledge. Yeah, you weren't searching or getting music off of it. No, or? I don't know that it even existed in our, you know, in our no. conscious at that point. But um, that said, you know, the, the sort of myth making around it and the the you know some of the things that that happened. I mean, you know, as it now sort of famously occurred, this was reported to have been a song-for-song song rebuttal of the Rolling Stones' hyper-masculine exile on Main Street, which... Which, uh, you know, I actually thought was the case for many years. Oh, I, that I, I mean, you know... I that never was, understood that actually, it, because I Right, no, because it, it, it doesn't match up song-for-song. No. Song. <laughs> and I love exile on Main Street, no. know it very well. We hot dogs and hot dog buns. I mean, these are the numbers yeah. didn't even match. But, like, it was just a funny thing that that... Um, Mythology was able to exist. I mean, it would have been shot down in 20 seconds now. People were oh, like, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, well, and I think, you know, some of that was her own. I mean, like you said, I think she was, you know, obviously Liz Fair is very intelligent and, and uh, you know, shows in her songwriting. But I also think she had a savvy that was kind of uncool then to kind of create sort of a little bit of myth and create a little bit of, uh, you know, storytelling around yeah. the album and, and even, you know, a little bit of a. Uh, you know, p- promotional skills in that sense, like, uh, you know, trying to kind of get some hype. I mean, this album, so the girly girl tapes that were passed around and, and pretty famously so, 
um, started to catch a lot of buzz in Chicago, and, and I think people were like, wow, you know, I mean, and you can listen to them. Actually, it's on Spotify right now, the entire, uh, the new reissue of the, sort of the box set that has the, the remastered album and, and the original demos. And you can really hear those songs. I mean, they, they are absolutely bedroom recordings, but you can hear what will be fleshed out into exile and, and they're not too far off so you know rightfully so she was getting a lot of hype and, and matador records who at the time i would say was probably the premier indie you know rock le- uh, yeah label. i mean if you um, if you consider you know actual indie rock i mean actual indie label as opposed to say a sire which was a label that was cool but it was owned by warner brothers and Right. So, I mean, you know, in Chicago, you had Touch and Go, you had, you know, Drag City, and, and you know, this, I mean, there were some, some labels that had some cachet, let's say. And I think at that time, Matador seemed to be New the York. one that had, yeah. yeah, it had the biggest sort of roster as well of, of the bands that got the most um, critical acclaim at the time. And, you know, right off those demos, they signed her and, and put out the album. So, I mean, you know, that was that was one of the things, I think, that really kind of caused some of the, like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> like, yeah, the meteoric Liz, Liz from the, you know, Rainbow Lounge, uh, just all of a sudden, she, you know. She is, sings, is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is getting written up in the Village Voice as the best album of the year. The other thing that was interesting about her was she had apparently, like, crippling stage fright. So I didn't see her till uh, you know, a couple albums later. I saw her at South by Southwest, uh, probably in the late 90s, off her, her third album. Um, but... You know, it was something that she, you know, had kind of done these these albums, you know, very rudimentally, had, you know, had friends, you know, obviously play on them. And I, I think to your point, I think there, she's a better guitar player and obviously a very good singer and songwriter. But, you know, I think actually the idea of playing live was very frightening to her. So getting sent out on tour, there was a little bit of backlash there, too, because she wasn't somebody who had played, you know, nonstop every night and toured the Midwest like crazy or the East Coast in, in a van. She got critical acclaim, you know, got signed, got uh, put out there and then got sent on the road. Yeah. The other funny thing that I had completely, you know, spaced since its release is that you know, this album had a nipple on it, um, and that was, you You're know, right. this is 1993, this is, and so there were alternate covers where it was just, the, you know, cropped higher, <laughs> but I mean, it's just, you know, just, a, again, a different time when you're like... And all the pictures taken, you know, in the Rainbow Lounge's uh, photo booth, you know, by, I think, a member of Verge Overkill. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty right. funny, you know, it's a, yeah, it's like a lo-fi, low-budget sort of masterpiece. I, mean, I don't think the album sold very well. But it's an album that anybody that heard that year... Compared to and, Expectation, it sure did. Oh, definitely. And I, and I think, too, it's an album that, um, you know, I think we both would agree absolutely stands the test of time. I, I've never not, you know, heard it and, and wanted to put it aside. You know, it's an album that sounds really fresh today. Great writing and I think is, is, is the most lasting. Um, you know, the sonics can change. It's sort of, you know, the production value. I mean, you listen to something like Tim by The Replacements, which I think we've, you know, sort of uh, talked about many, many times as not being the greatest produced album of all time. Um, but, you know, the writing's good enough. The songs are, you know, the sentiments are universal enough and the person is talented enough. It, it you know, supersedes all the trappings. I was
in the 25-year uh, sort of box set is, is coming at a time where you have women absolutely leading the charge in Iraq. And I think, you know, Liz Fair is on tour right now playing actually really great medium-sized clubs. I mean, I was in Chicago last weekend for work, and she was actually playing the Empty Bottle, sold out, of course. Um, you know, she's playing Sinclair here, and soccer mommy's opening up for her, cited as, you know, Liz Fair is a huge influence. Snail Mail, who's getting tons of press right now from Baltimore, um, you know, another sort of acolyte of this album. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an album that really, I think, well, you know... The funny thing is when you get a news, you know, like a, a, a you know, a universal, you know, and... and a movement with as moment as much momentum as as Me Too, uh, you start to get a lot of um, press uh, saying, you know, is X the perfect album for the Me Too era? Is X, um, you know, is blah 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 the 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 you know defining artistic statement of the Trump administration? You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, Funny thing, 25 years earlier, they had the perfect album for the Me Too movement. It's called Exile in Guyville. Exactly, and uh, Bill Clinton was president. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Anyway, you want to take a quick break and then come back and, and uh, reminisce a little bit more about an even older thing? Reminisce over you? Absolutely. Right. That sounds good. podcast tonight uh we are a brother brother podcast it's me and jeremy and um one of the things that i wanted i was having a conversation the other day with christian about um you know uh sporting events that used to be that used to have so much more uh gravitas and so much more um you know that just used to have such a much larger chunk of real estate in the world um you know kentucky derby uh you know, we were saying that the Indy 500, which is virtually forgotten now, I mean, that that was, whoever won the Indy 500 was a celebrity. And, you know, the, the heavyweight championship of the world in boxing, I mean, there's nobody in the world literally to this day that's more famous than Muhammad Ali. So, but one of the things that always, I, made me laugh is um, dovetailing with the Indy 500, I believe it was every Memorial Day, could have been, um, sometimes on Labor Day, but every r- classic rock station, and there was one or two per city uh, that would have these 500-song epic countdowns of the greatest rock and roll songs in history. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, another thing... It was like, crack your uh, you know, pull-top Budweiser, so, and, throw and, on and your American flag, jean shorts. It wasn't even, like, really precipitated by this, but there is something to... Like a Memorial Day three-day weekend, summer coming, 
um, that just makes, like, I don't know, Miller High Life taste that much better and classic rock sound that much better. Um, oh, yeah. So I wound up uh, DJing a lot of this weekend with with a heavy dose of classic rock and thinking back to, like, actually anticipating, like, sitting by the radio thinking, you know, what's going to be number one and having a rooting interest and being pissed when, you know, turn the page was in the top six. <laughs> when the Eagles to stole the show. Just like every overlong, you know, song that you're so sick of, you know, it was always, in the, it was always Hotel California and... Yeah, you know, something by the. I mean, t- as much as I love, you know, Alabama, you know, the, or Freebird, or you know, like. Oh yeah, but and, and then number it. one was always Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, <laughs> and which so, I just don't like that much. Yeah, but it was every overlong song. It was you know, yeah, Freebird, Turn the Page, all these songs. But it was I was just you know, it, it more of a a, uh, a bit of whimsy, um, not really an important topic so much as I just I wonder what this. Um, a, what this would look like now. B, what constitutes classic rock. And C, like, when did certain songs that weren't classic rock achieve classic rock status? Because classic rock status. Yeah. Well, starting with A, I mean, what it would look like now. And I do remember this as well. I mean, I think we were sort of reminiscing off, off air. And, you know, I used to work at a, a as you know, a sandwich shop and high, throughout high school. And I think I, I usually had to work, like, one of these weekends, these holiday weekends. And it was just, like, the best because you had the radio on and everybody was, like, cranked up and we were, you know, outside smoking butts and cutting up uh, deli sandwiches and you were just stoked because you knew you were going to get, like, a weekend full of great rock. And also just, like, trying to um, figure and, like, having arguments, legitimate arguments over yeah. Oh, totally. No, like, what is, and what is the best classic rock song? I mean, it was, like, but number one was never satisfying. I mean, no. ever. Um, but it was something too that I think you were just tied to your radio a little more. I mean, I you know I remember you know hanging out with my buddies and popping on the radio during a you know a weekend out you know going to the beach or whatever, and you, you kind of took that that with you and in the car and, and uh, you know obviously it was a big part of that probably still is a little bit more today but like so you know now it's just so fragmented I don't I don't think you could do you couldn't get excited about something like that and then to your point like having it be tied into something like the Indy 500 is just obsolete right yeah. I mean I didn't even know the Indy 500 was this weekend yeah no, I'm kidding <laughs> And, uh, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. But I think with the, the streaming, but I think that kind of goes We're to your second down. question, which is what makes classic rock classic rock? And, and I would almost ask you because it, it just seems like, well, I mean, my, my opinion is that you kind of had this sort of quote unquote golden age of rock from what, like 68 to 78 or something? Like, I have no much. idea. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very, you know, when you think about it in the annals of how important it was, like, when we were growing up, I mean, you're really talking about, I mean, anything sort of, pre, most things pre-67, 68 were kind of, you know... Yeah, like more doo wop right? And, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously the Beatles were doing really interesting things and the Stones, but, you know, and you get the satisfaction and a... It's like starts with Jimi Hendrix, ends with Michael McDonald, or... Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Um, but, it, 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 you know, and... Um, you know, I'm trying to think of like what the last quote unquote classic rock albums are. I mean, obviously you get well, stuff like, you know, your end point might be Joshua Tree or Brothers in Arms or, or, but everything, I guess now, and then all of a sudden, you know, gr- you know, the stuff we thought, of, you know, was grunge and, and such at the time, I, I guess is now classic rock. 
Yeah, I mean, it's got to have something to do with sort of like album sales and, and impact that the, the band or the record had. But yeah, I mean, to your point, it, it's interesting because you, you then also had the rehab. So, I mean, I, I, my theory is obviously that, you know, the record execs and the, you know, radio people that, you know, the baby boomers, let's call them, um, who grew up with the only music that mattered, mm-hmm. you know, obviously controlled all this for way too long. And so what you ended up even having was like, you know, recent like 90s Don Henley albums becoming classic rock because they can't get off of the same group of artists yeah. that made them the fortunes that well, they yeah, sit I mean, on. Obviously, we're looking at you, Jan Wenner. And the Rock exactly. and Roll Hall of Fame, but but you know, then having even bands like I mean, U two is a Joshua Tree is classic rock, right? I mean, like are uh, Chili even Peppers one, classic rock. Uh, fuck to, uh, like, are they? Yeah, I mean, God. is Give It Away a classic rock song now? Yeah, and I think it would be played on quote unquote classic rock radio, and, and has classic rock radio become sort of like what? And I'm going to only name check up Boston radio station because that's where I live right now, but the river or something where, you know, is there still that kind of format? There is a classic rock station uh, in Boston called WZLX. And my, my, and you know, it is a, um, it is, you know, advertised as such. It is a hundred percent, you know, uh, adherent to that format. It is, but so BTO, yeah, I mean, uh, scared. Yeah. We used to play this game actually when we Eagles. I used to drive back and forth to Western Mass and and like the Springfield Station and forgive me for getting what it was like Rock One Hundred Two. Um, we used to like write down five band names and whoever hit first, uh, you know, drank free. <laughs> um, and but it was always like that that cut below. You know, it wasn't like you didn't go with like the Zeppelin. Stones, Beatles, it was always like Bad Co, uh, 38 yeah. Special, um, you know, BTO and, and Nugent, you know. Um, and it, but it, so, you know, again, like I said, and, and I'm sure that there is an answer to this question, and um, finding out the answer to the question is far less fun than, than debating it and trying to make up our own version. But, you know, I mean, yeah, U2 is classic now. Prince is classic now. Well, I remember Talking one Heads are out. classic now. Yeah, and those were the, you know, those were the... And they were kind of outlier bands, bands back then. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think it has to be... It has to be a song that, that you know, for those types of bands that breaks through. I mean, or the band has to have achieved some sort of commercial success. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't get... Like you said, maybe Nirvana is, is classic rock at this point, but like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But I mean, there there, there is that formula of like selling a shit ton of records yeah. that sort of cements you and the uh, and having a single. And the thing, I mean, I think the greatest thing and the worst thing about classic rock ever is it's never a song that you haven't heard eight million times. You know, they're not going to play. Um, you know, and your bird can sing by the Beatles. Yes, they're going to play. Hey you know, Hey Jude. Or yeah, which will be number six on the top yeah. 500, by the way. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just painful in the sense that, like, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's funny because I, I know, and, you know, not to throw back that Christian who's not on, on tonight, but he's a much bigger Led Zeppelin fan than I think you and I are. Yeah. It's not because I don't love Led Zeppelin. It's because classic rock absolutely ruined destroyed. Classic rock radio, yeah. I should say. Absolutely ruined Led Yeah, exactly. But even if you they, go through, like, the, the satellite radio channels, I mean, there's, like, 12 classic rock stations that are, are variations on the theme. There's, like, right. deep cuts and classic vinyl. And right. Uh, you know, what is the vinyl one called? Uh, is it classic vinyl? Is that what it's called? Okay. And then, you know, but then you have like, you know, 
seventies rock. Well, then you have or, Nugent Station, the Bruce Springsteen Station, which is also yeah, kind of all the, in line. Tom, Tom Petty Station, yeah, exactly. The Fleetwood Mac Station now. Um, I just had satellite radio last week in LA. So, um, but yeah, it's, it, you, you know, you're just going to further cut classic rock into into you know smaller and smaller. Um, it's actually know, inspiring me to. Uh, to tune in this week to classic rock, the local classic rock station because I, I almost feel like it's obsolete at this point, but I guess not. Mm-hmm. I was going back though and like listening to some stuff uh, this weekend because I was just you know dicking around DJing and playing like you know I mean nothing to summer the like, take the money and run by Steve Miller, right. or, <laughs> but then I was playing like some Billy Squire songs nice. off Don't Say No. They're pretty good, you know. They're oh good no, stuff. there's great it's stuff, a, and it's stuff that I kind of fought a little bit. When I, well, you know, you love it and then you fight it and then you go back to it because it, it, yeah, it, you love it again because it is classic yeah. <laughs> when all is yeah, said and exactly. done. <laughs> and then you see it at your 20th high school reunion and you make out with it. <laughs> <dumpster>. exactly. <laughs> you know? It's also the king of greatest hits. Like all of those bands have pretty damn good greatest hits collections too, you know, for your C- yeah. for your CD tree. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the doobies and but it, it also got me thinking, and you know this this could go you know I could yammer on all night about this stuff, but like how is like how, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like how is a band like the Guess Who or and and forgive me if they're in, um, but like the Guess Who or Three Dog Night who had just had like tons and tons of hits um, somehow valued below uh, you know. Jackson Brown, who had two hits, a bunch of hits too, yeah. but like not as big as like Three Dog Night in their day, and not as big as um, you know the Guess Who. I think, speaking of BTO, I mean, I think in the when it gets to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there is that tinge of like, just like critic just acclaim. Like you get, yeah, pretty good in friends with Jan Wenner. Yeah, that exactly. Seems to be the criteria. Yeah, and if you were sort of uh, poo-pooed maybe in your day by the Cream magazine or Rolling Stone, you know, because I think like some of those. Stooges. Yeah, exactly. Then you would have you wouldn't get in if you were like all over it. Then you would. Yeah, because the Stooges mm-hmm. had no hits. <laughs> they were. Yeah. You know. <laughs> nor did the Ramones, and they made it in too as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a sort of a balance of you know, and again, it's. I never it's never claimed to be an objective process um, you know uh, but you know, another irrelevant something. thing like the top 500 uh, list by the way is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yeah yeah it's, it's a, um, yeah they fall in the same kind of thing and I, but like I said and you know we'll wrap this up in a, a tidy little bun but I um, you know I wonder if those things the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the in uh, classic rock, do they go the way of of the heavyweight championship of the world and the you know winner of the Indy Five Hundred? Are they are we are we a decade away from those being forgotten? I don't know. As long as uh, you know kids are still smoking doobies and uh, pulling uh, Town Miller High Lives, I think we'll always hanging by the lake. And uh, I think we might always have classic rock. Yeah, I don't know. As long as. Kid Rock is such a cool <laughs> as as, yeah. Kid Rock, anyway. Kid Rock is wrapped in an American flag. We'll be all right. Yeah. Um, well, well, happy Memorial Day. <laughs> happy Memorial Day to you. And uh, let's um, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and just do uh, what are you listening to, and um, and we'll add a song to the list. Sounds good.
Welcome back to the Brother 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 Pod, and tonight it's just a Brother Brother Pod with Wyndham and I, and we uh, discussed the uh, Liz Fair's excellent Exxon Guyville 25 years later, and the um, new box that they came out that includes her early demos, and then we just sort of uh, had a meandering conversation about the uh, memories from our childhood, and, and we're wondering if it'll, it'll go away for others, but it's the, uh, the, the Memorial Day countdowns and classic rock and where that kind of lands today. It's the same, same kind of verbal diarrhea I guess you get from drinking too much bush light. Yeah, well, it's the end of the weekend, and, and I'm about three more bush lights before bed. So um, We're going to end this pod, though, as we always end it, and uh, that's with what are you listening to and adding songs to our playlist. So, Wynn, what are you listening to? Uh, I'm going to go with a couple of new shows that I've watched. I am uh, just finished um, episode two of Patrick Melrose, which I liked much more than the first episode of Patrick Melrose. Um, I watched a new Netflix show with Michael C. Hall called Safe, which... How was that? It's fucking horrible. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, it's really funny. I mean, it's just... It, the It's a every, Harlan Coben, right? Who I, yeah, who it's I a Harlan like. Coben thing, and I, I hate to land on something hard, because like, it's just not usually our style, but like it... It makes no sense, <laughs> and, and Michael Hall has such a bad British accent. I heard it looks he had like a British he's accent, to it, which is painful. To speak English at the same, <laughs> you know. And the, I really like him as an actor. I think I've always thought he was really good as an actor. But it was, it's like it's worth watching to sh- to just l- learn you learn your own self how not to make a TV show. So we can call it a hate watch for our listeners. It, it but it, it's an enjoyable hate watch. But the the. Speaking of, I did go back and watch, uh, rewatch uh, season two, three, and part of season four of Veep. Which, wow, yeah. that when they were on, man, they were as good as anything I've seen in a long time. Oh, yeah, a show that I, I'm gonna say is has faded for me quite a bit in the last couple of seasons. But the first uh, two and three, like you said, were so funny. So they're watching. so good, and they really stand up well. So that's what I. I so whatever I've been listening to, other than. Uh, the new Gold Connections, popular fiction, which I really like a lot. Um, album-wise, I've been watching a lot more television than I have been listening. Nice. You've been listening to the uh, Talking Box? I have. Um, yeah, and I've been listening to so uh, music, and I know you, you. I need to catch up on TV, but it's been uh, a while. So I did see... Um, uh, I can't remember now. But anyways, music-wise, so I went back and I, uh, I cut a track from Tyler, the Creator's Flower Boy, and I had never really given that album the proper spin that I, uh, you know, kind of wanted to. went back and listened to it, and I really like it. It's a, uh, it was, it's a last year's record by him and got on a lot of, of end-of-the-year lists. Um, it's, it's weird as hell, but, like, much catchier than I kind of remember, and I uh, highly recommend going back and listening to that. And then also uh, another hip-hop album, Playboy Cardi's Die Lit, which um, is, like, an acquired taste, you know. I'm, I'm, it's an album that's getting, you know, tons of good press and tons of hype, and I'm, you know, warming to it. it it's definitely a different style than I kind of lean to in the hip-hop world. Very Atlanta, very, you know, kind of um, sort of monotone kind of keeps the same pace throughout the album but uh, um there's a lot going on there and, and i think it's a pretty cool record so um those are those are what i've been listening to good i'm glad to get some new recommendations because i'm uh tailing behind if you can't if you can't uh tell so you want to uh take um you want to put a song on the 400 million 632 thousand 
and three. Ten, <laughs> the top 500 Memorial time. songs. Yeah. Memorial Day exactly. songs of the weekend. Um, yeah, I am. And uh, I think this is one of my favorite songs by a band that's been going at it for a while. Another Atlanta, hail from Atlanta as well. And it's, uh, I'm going to go with Deer Hunter's Revival off of uh, Halcyon Days. Nice. And I am going to, I, I very cleverly decided I was going to meld um, the Chicago scene conversation with the top 500 classic rock songs <laughs> of all time conversation and go with uh, Dream Police by Cheap Trick. Nice. Awesome. That's yeah. Great. Cool. I don't yeah, think we have any Cheap Trick on there either, which they may get. They may get a few on there by the end of the... Uh, oh, they will. Our retirement. But I wanted to start in an, an unusual place. I thought surrender. I want you to want me, but I was like, you know what? The dream dream place is really good on mixes. Yeah, it's a great song. Anyway, until next time, let's. Uh, we'll catch up very soon. And thanks for joining me. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Bye. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartorian and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.